Welcome back to another episode of the Next Frontier Podcast. On this episode, I have a really special conversation with an Air Force veteran and the current co-founder and CEO of AFWorks. AFWorks is a portmanteau for Air Force and Works, kind of like Skunk Works. They are the premier innovation empowerment organization for the Air Force, and they are building a model that other organizations throughout the Department of Defense are using and deploying to empower military innovation for the United States military. It's truly an exceptional organization, and Brian, otherwise known as Beam, is an exceptional leader and person. And I'm really honored and grateful to have this conversation with him. So I hope that you enjoy, and I'll let Beam take over from here. Ryan, I would love to start by asking you to tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, one of the questions I like to, to, to start asking guests is, who is Brian Mao in 2020? Who is Brian Mao in 2020? Great question. And Brian Mao in 2020, really, Max? I would start with Beam. It's a name I picked up about 10 years ago in the military, and everybody's been calling me, so please feel free to call me Beam from here on out. It's part of our military culture as you, you earn your call signs and nicknames for different reasons, but short version, Brian Mao is Beam right now. And in 2020, I have the incredible good fortune of leading some of the most talented people, not only in the Air Force, but in our nation with regard to creating innovation, grassroots innovation that has had billion dollar effects. And we can talk more about the specific programs later on, but Beam is the guy who is in charge of a fusion of innovation capabilities that are designed to connect Air Force innovators with broader technology opportunities through industry, academia, and Air Force labs and military labs so that we can create a more agile technological force as well as a culturally more agile force and a mindset that gets us quicker towards experimentation and faster development times and more rapid innovation for our warfighters and our nation's defense. Very cool. So you kind of answered this question just now, but if you could then elaborate and take that a step further and tell us what is AFWorks, kind of what's the two-minute elevator pitch for this, this new entity called AFWorks? Right. So yes, so the, the, the clean line uh, bumper sticker is that AFWorks is a fusion of capabilities that uh, connects innovators and accelerates results to create cultural and technological agility for our Air Force. We do this by solving pain points, as well as taking advantage of opportunities at the individual airman warrior level, as well as at the base level, as well as at what you would call a major command level. And think of that as we have a fighter command, air combat command, a bomber command, global strike command. So even at the multi 10, 15 bases under one command level, we have a program of innovation for that. And also through our linkages with the Pentagon, we sometimes go after enterprise-wide uh, concerns and opportunities. For example, JADC2, Joint All-Domain Command and Control, JADC2, because military likes its acronyms. Uh, we have a program that we've been working with that as well. So yes, we uh, connect innovators and accelerate results with a strategy of empowering innovators so that they can defend for America. So the reason I wanted to have you on today, uh, Beam, is I think that there's so many lessons that the private sector and especially young entrepreneurs entering the private sector and even young entrepreneurs who might be thinking about joining the military or, or going into the public sector can take from the work that you're doing. You published this incredible ebook that summarizes 
the lessons you've learned in building this new innovation infrastructure hub. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about that ebook? Um, and then I'd love to loop back around and just hear how you got to this point. Um, you know, when you're telling us about the ebook, maybe just a, a two, two second overview about what's in it and we'll loop back around to some of those themes of what AFWorks is and some of the lessons that I learned from the ebook throughout the rest of the conversation. Wow, great question. Okay, so if you do a search engine, you could type just AFWERX, A-F-W-E-R-X, and then space book, and you will see multiple different links pop up that either are AFWERX Lessons Learned book, AFWERX Best Practices book, or you might actually get the PDF title of AFWERX, Empowering Next Generation Innovators and Innovations. And the title kind of says it all, as well as my previous description. This is, here we are coming up on our third year. AFWorks was born of an idea back in February of 2017, and then we finally coalesced enough forces in July of 2017. So after about two and now coming up on three years, at the two-year point, I turned to our talented group of members and I said, you know, we should write this down. What has happened here is unique, not only to the Air Force, but to the U.S. government. We should write down our frustrations. We should write down our lessons learned. We should write down our best practices, not only for us, but for the federal government. And it is a real thrill sometimes when other members of government are like, hey, you're the AFWorks people. I read your book. Can we talk? And without going so far as to call it mentoring, we are able to pass on some ideas of, oh, you're going to try and start an innovation? I don't, okay, well, let's be sure we go through things. And some of the basic stuff from Silicon Valley, you know, have you started with an end user? Are you iterating with the end customer in mind? What is your prototype approach? What's your minimum viable product? So you'll, without us saying, this is a design thinking idea from Silicon Valley or anything so ro robotic. Uh, if you go through that 136 pages of PDF, you will see best practices and lessons learned from starting up an innovation group. And you will see some of the lessons learned that help lead to how is it that we were able to attract outsider investment for some very key Air Force priorities that is now topped over a billion dollars of private investment that makes taxpayer dollars cheaper? How is it that we were able to connect over 60,000 people into our innovation ecosystem from academia, the military, as well as the business non-traditional community? So many of the members from the business community, like 80 to 90%, when they engage in our competitions, usually check a box that says, no, I have not worked with the US government before. So as part of our mission to expand the defense industrial base, as part of our cultural mission to pass on our knowledge learned to others, we created this book and we believe it's having a positive effect out there, not only for our Air Force, but for our government and our nation. So now that the stage is set for how powerful of an individual BEAM is and how powerful of an organization AFWorks is, Beam, I'd love to take a step back and learn a little bit more about you and your career. So how did you come to be the CEO of AFWorks? What, what was the first step in your career that you actually got into the Air Force? Could you, could you tell us a little bit more about your story? Sure. Uh, ROTC, so uh, it's a shame it's a podcast. People cannot see the Michigan State Cup, but ROTC, Air Force ROTC at Michigan State, who, of course, would have won the tournament this year were it not for the COVID pandemic slowing down attendance capabilities, but the Big Ten champions, nonetheless, a land of champions. Uh, Michigan State ROTC produced me. I was the cadet group commander, I guess, so I did have some leadership uh, that I had promoted to along the way. And then truly uh, on, on a lark of the military is very big about service before self. It's one of our core values. And we were doing a career day, and one of the captains that came into the room 
was an ICBM, Intercontinental Ballistic Missile, so the thing that can fly ooh, at least 5,000 miles in an unclassified uh, setting and, and do damage if necessary. An ICBM launch officer was there at career day, and he was like, hey, you look like you got some glasses on, and I did at the time before it was laser corrected, and he's like, uh, you probably can't fly, but have you thought about doing operations with nuclear missiles? I had never thought about doing flying out with nuclear missiles before, but then um, as we talked through it, uh, I ended up joining and ICBMs made up the first five years of my 21 years of military time, and it included the pure random luck of getting picked for what's called a foot shot. So the foot is FOT&E, Field Operation Test and Evaluation, as in they pull an actual missile out of, in my case, Cheyenne, Wyoming, F.E. Warren Air Force Base. They actually pull a missile, we throw it on a train, we drive it out to California so that we don't have to fly over U.S. airspace, and then we launch it out of Vandenberg Air Force Base, California, over the Pacific Ocean, so again, we're not going over anybody's heads, and we aim it at a certain target, and then we can test the accuracy three, four times a year of our ICBM missile fleet. So I actually got to launch an ICBM and be part of the team, so that made up my first five years, but nope, not a technologist, political science pre-law, and then my MBA was in leadership and change management, and then my PhD from RAND. So it's all got a linkage of human behavior, policy analysis, so steeped in statistics and microeconomics, some macroeconomics. So mostly I'm a human behavior kind of guy. I started out in ICBMs, taught at the Air Force Academy for 10 years, earning my degrees in between, and then finished up running a $25 billion five-year plan of B-2s, B-52s, and ICBMs. Uh, out of the Pentagon, reporting to generals, of course, and then finished with a policy-level position on the joint staff for Chairman Dempsey, which included flying to Beijing and being the, one of the U.S. reps with regard to nuclear strategy with the talk of the five nuclear powers, and then uh, doing a landmine uh, package for the chairman who would be going over to brief both Congress and the president on various options associated with our weapon systems. I am I am shocked at how much how much content you just fit into that amount of time. That was incredible. Very concise use of words and very precise uh, precise language. Um, a few a few follow up questions there. So a lot of our listeners might not be too familiar with military culture, kind of the pathways to actually get into the military. Could you tell us a little bit about ROTC? Why you joined ROTC? Um, you know what the program was like and and what what value it created for you early in your career. Sure. So uh, joining Michigan State, I came in as a no preference major, and I probably changed my major five, six times. I really was a bit of a uh, bumble around, randomness, let's see where the universe unfolds kind of guy. But uh, when, it, when uh, the first day I landed, actually, they had, again, a career fair of tables out there, and there was an Air Force recruiter there. And as we were talking, he's like, you know, you might like it. There's no commitment the first year. I'm not asking you to sign up. There's no scholarship money. Nothing. Just if you want to come try it, we're going to have you brief at class. So you would do two briefings a semester. We're going to, yeah, we'll teach you how to march, but you also get opportunities to run projects. And as you walk through it, it very much sounded like, you know, that fraternities do it, different uh, social organizations for their majors do it, where you work your way up through the ranks and you handle projects and stuff so that you have resume fodder when you get out. So under a no commitment, no obligation, but hey, this looks like this is going to sharpen my skills a bit, I uh, opted to go with 
course, because when he got done, he's like, well, you can probably do it being a navigator, you've got glasses, or we could do um, police force, you don't need to worry about the vision on that one, so you could do a hardcore combat, or you could fly a satellite, or you could be an intel officer, or you could, and the range was just so amazing that much like the innovative spirit where we take a broad portfolio approach to things and we see where the winners are, the Air Force basically said, I have all these career fields for you. Just come on and try. You don't have to commit to anything right now. And so that kind of drew me in. And it was simply one class an hour a week uh, for the freshman and sophomore years. And then you did an hour and a half leadership laboratory where you did do some of the more traditional marching and stuff like that. But you definitely have a chance to grow up through the ranks from just being a subordinate who answers to the juniors and seniors to by the time you're a senior suddenly you're in charge of a team of 60 or 70 and it's even if you didn't stay in the military you would have the resume fodder when you walk out of college so a lot of good opportunities and leadership opportunities within the ROTC program. And what made you make the decision to go from ROTC into the Air Force? You make a call and it's a fair call on the Air Force's and the taxpayer dollar side your sophomore year that they say, if we're going to send you to boot camp, there's probably a commitment coming around on the other side of this. So boot camp could be four to five weeks back then. Uh, as, as everybody in the military says, Max, back then, back when it was hard, you know, now boot camp, whatever that is. Uh, but, but yes, back then when it was hard, uh, it was at that time that you went off to boot camp and then you had to sign the paper that said, you know, as a result of going to this camp, much like you would for a corporation, if they're going to pay for your MBA or something like that, you owe it to your commitment or something like that. So typically it was with camp, then came the contract that said, I will finish out my time in ROTC and I will join the Air Force. And it could change, you know, if they needed fewer or more people, you might end up in the reserves versus the active duty. But so by the time it was a sophomore, uh, I was enamored enough with, wow, this is really developing me as a person and showing me things I hadn't seen before. I got to go to jump school between my junior and senior year. So I got to jump out of planes at the Air Force Academy about 5,000 feet above what was already 7,000 feet above sea level and stuff like that. So just an outrageously good time in college uh, with the ROTC experience. Very cool. And did you have any military influence in your family before you joined? My father was uh, drafted into the Vietnam War, and he uh, he definitely had discussions with me about the way that the Vietnam veterans were not necessarily treated in a positive manner when they came back. And, and again, they were drafted. There were government leaders who made decisions to send these people and go off and defend what was perceived to be U.S. interests. We can talk about the domino theory later, or we can talk about whether or not that was or was not an effective or the right policy choice. But with regard to the American citizens who went, they went and they served, you know, and to come back and there were people who would spit at them at the airports and stuff like that. Uh, now, my dad, very big uh, values and character kind of guy. And, uh, so I, I just, I thought it was interesting. I didn't know if I was going to end up in the Army or the Air Force, but I thought I would take it take it for a spin. And like I said, the Air Force caught me and uh, never let go. And what did your dad do in Vietnam? Was he, a, was he a pilot? Was he in the Air Force? He was actually helicopter side of the house, uh, gunneries, and uh, sometimes on the mechanic side and sometimes on the flying in uh, mission side to recon people out of combat zones. Mm. It's, it's interesting. I mean, I'm a... I'm a Holocaust second generation person. And so that it's interesting how experiences like that, like Vietnam, like, like Holocaust, like these traumatic experiences, you know, they can dramatically influence, I'm sure they'll also influence your kids and, and their kids and whatnot. Um, 
So it's really interesting. Thank you for your dad's service and thank your dad for his service and thank you for your service. Um, and, and where did you guys grow up? Were you in Michigan? Is that why you ended up in Michigan State? Oh, right. Yes. Uh, up in Manistee, Michigan, which is about halfway up on the coastline of Lake Michigan, Lower Peninsula, uh, hay baling, wood hauling, ice fisherman type of, type of town. So not exactly high-tech mania, town of about 6,000, but super two beaches. So there's a little river that runs through the town and there's a, the north side beach and the south side beach. And it's, I would argue they're some of the most beautiful in the world if you ever get a chance to get up there to Manistee, Michigan. But real simple town. My dad was a factory painter at the Morton Salt factory and my mom was a hair cutter. So again, uh, not a whole lot of technology. I know you had asked before, hey, think about where did technology come into play in your early life? My best story I have for you. We, my brother, my older brother and I, and my younger brother, we were the precursors to the Nerf gun because we would, since back then, I know, Max, this is going to stun you. There was a time before cable TV, but before cable TV, there actually was a, gosh, you got to make up your own game. So we would put on three layers of long underwear, pump action BB guns, and we would go chase each other. This is not some, again, safety disclaimers, whatever you need to put into the podcast at this point in time, but... Growing up, you have to be creative. So I, I would say we were very innovative with the primitive technologies that we had in northern Michigan back then. I was laughing because I don't even know what cable is at this point. But uh... <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that was so wired technology ago. <laughs> wired. They had those big satellite things on top of the televisions. I don't even know what a television looks like at this point. Um, right. Very cool. So, so I guess that's, that's about Brian. Is there, any, is there any kind of experiences in your, in your early life where you said, oh, wow, this technology thing, maybe not when you were a kid, but as you were getting older, as you were going through the early stages of your Air Force career, you said, wow, this technology thing, this innovation thing is really interesting. I want to, uh, I want to devote some more time to this. In, in my experience, because I come from more of the liberal arts background, uh, the political science pre-law gave me a chance to go back into both constitutional history as well as a lot of economics. And when you look at that 250-year miracle that is the United States, and you say, how does a startup group of colonies, how does a startup group of colonies defeat the most powerful military force, the British Empire at the time, and then go on to survive a civil war where half a million people are wiped out, and then still go on to what is it about the United States that allowed them to rise to be a superpower that was a decisive factor in two world wars that would come upon us in the 20th century. That fascination with the overall Adam Smith and the wealth of nations, creative destruction, and the innovative process, if not from a technological side, but from a systematic side, how different the world is because of the United States, whether it's moon landing, iPods, the car, the things that have come out of the United States because there is a system of innovation that was in place that was very much about low regulation. And again, just the three fundamentals, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. No guarantees, but we're going to give you as much room as we can so you can go out there and try it out and see what you can get done. And then that broad portfolio of creative efforts that is not coordinated by a centralized government, but just people scrapping to make value as they can best see fit or as Alexis de Tocqueville would say, enlightened self-interest, knowing that if I make something awesome that you want, it's gonna sell. 
That I was enamored with in college because it became very apparent how different the United States history was, was from so many other nations because we did have an innovation system in place within our policies and governance. Is that is that kind of the driver for what's influenced how you've been running AFWorks? The the you know the tenets of the constitution. Obviously, it's the US, US DOD and you know constitution. But but in terms of the tactically tactical way that you're running running AFWorks, has that been a core tenet? Absolutely. So if the Articles of Confederation were our first, I mean, you talk about innovation from the founding fathers, right? We started under an Articles of Confederation. We're like, that's weak sauce. We need to try this again. And then we went to a constitutional model and, whoa, what a constitution. And the Bill of Rights, because, well, we need enough of a centralized intent that we can have some uh, economies of scale for like a military to protect all of our young colonies and states. But at the same time, we wanna have decentralized execution. AFWorks very much follows a flat organization. There's myself, there's WAG on the, on the marketing side, Daggers is our DO side, and then it gets really thin with regard to centralized intent and headquarters group. After that, it is all decentralized execution, frontline innovators at the base level, at the MAGCOM level, at the individual airman level. Yes, we absolutely are modeled on the insights of the founding fathers with regard to centralized small regulatory governance of a headquarters or central government, and then decentralized execution from our frontline innovators or the states. So that's really interesting. So, so I guess this is a great point to transition into the AFWorks part of the conversation um, and into the kind of the innovation centric part of the conversation. So maybe you could give us a little background from that train of thought that you're having converging with what was happening in the Air Force, I think around 2017 when you started the organization. How, how did AFWorks actually come to be? How did the innovation processes that you're describing that were happening across the country and, and I imagine elsewhere in the military um, how did those start to become formalized into what is now AFWorks? One of the biggest inspirations that started the Air Force on this was that our Vice Chief of Staff, General Wilson, so the number two general in the Air Force, the Vice Chief of Staff, happened to be on a trip to Florida where there was an innovation hub for Special Ops Command, Softworks, that was down there. And he went into the hub and he could see the benefit of having an organization that was outside of a military fence because if a business leader, here's the story, a farmer comes into this hub of Softworks and says, hey, you know, I came up with this thing. I was just trying to wash off all the pig slop and stuff, so I kind of created my own soap. But, you know, I noticed when I walked around the corner of the barn, the dogs didn't bark. The dogs always come to me. It's like they couldn't see me. And so the softworks people, special operations forces, SOS, soft, special operations forces people were like, would you say that again? Seems like I invented a soap that gets rid of neutralizing dog sense and the ability to see you because we can do anti-infrared, we can do camouflage against the visual eye, we can do some amazing things. But one of the big concerns for the soft warrior in a low crawl in tall grass was the dogs can smell us. And so suddenly here it is, a patriotic farmer comes into this hub because it's not behind a fence on a base where you have to have guards and check-ins, but instead you can walk into this unclassified hub and just say, hey, I've got something, could this be interesting to you? And then uh, depending on the different mechanisms, sometimes uh, there are formalized ways of saying I've got something and different soft offices would come in and see what does your list of something look like this week and such. 
Basically, 2017 Softworks was an opening inspiration for General Wilson. He asked within the Pentagon if there was a group of people who would be willing to take this on. And for us, it was Lieutenant General, so a three-star general, J.D. Harris of A58, which is kind of like plans and future programs, who said, hey, maybe we can get after technology in an unclassified way. Who's up for this? And so suddenly hands started going up and fast forward, and eventually then I'm the leader of AFWorks. So could you talk about technology in an unclassified way? I think that's an important distinction of, of you know, for AFWERX. And then I have a bunch of follow-up questions on this, on this, on this motif. Sure. So uh, there are different types of uh, so classified ways, right? I will not be able to have an F-35 sitting out in the middle of the street for people to walk up to, knowing that the adversarial forces will have their sensors and will be taking pictures left and right from their collars and things like that. So there there are certain things that, nope, sorry, that's technology that cannot be touched. But with regard to something as important as JADC2 or multi-domain operations or command and control, Algorithms, algorithms can be unclassified, right? Algorithms that run airline schedules for any of the major airlines can also be algorithms that run efficient launch operations for our various defense or attack missions, where you say, ah, oh, this plane is available, this cargo is available, this target is available. All of that can be performed in an unclassified manner. So for AFWorks, part of our mission is creating those unclassified analogy sets so that we can have the basic capability. And then after those connections are made, if people want to take it to a more classified realm of, well, I need it for this kind of a bombing mission. Okay, now you probably have to go on base, go to a secure room behind three feet of concrete and have those discussions. But for the introductory, what is the art of the possible? What are the capable technologies out there? That's something that it's very useful to have the outside of the fence innovation hub or open connection experience available. So that, that's a great lead in. What, what new role is the AFWERX organization playing for the, for the U.S. Air Force and for the DOD? You know, what role that wasn't filled before, um, either glaring or obvious or not obvious? I, I would say not as obvious, um, but, but simply an expansion of tools because the Air Force, for, I'll say with the Air Force, we have a lot, I think, if you look in the, the budgets, I think you can publicly find about $2 billion that might be out there for research and development. We have our Air Force research labs. We have all sorts of classified programs and other things that happen. So on the one hand, innovation is taking place. On the other hand, as the bumper sticker goes, uh, think big, start small, scale fast, we have a slightly expanded version of that bumper sticker that it's think big, start small, Fail cheap, learn fast, scale big and win. And it's those two middle phrases that are kind of key because if you think about traditional military acquisition, you might think about the F-35 or the next ICBM and you're like, wow, that's a mega billion dollar bet for every copy that we make. Wow, if we get that wrong, you know, and you have to go through all of these stages and things, whereas algorithms, there are all sorts of unclassified uh, things that we can do with regard to pilot helmets and other technologies that we've touched upon, where it's like, hey, this is actually pretty cheap. And if we screw it up, eh, we learn from it. So we fail, but we fail cheap. We learn quickly, we iterate, and we, we move on to the next prototype. There's 
two different classes, so AFWorks isn't the answer to everything, but AFWorks can be an answer for many things, and we continue to see that coming through, whether it's for JADC2 algorithms, a pilot helmet, a lay-down mattress that you put into a refueler because these people have to look down upon the planes that they're refueling, and so they have back and neck injuries. So there are uh, multiple different technologies that we can get after cheaply instead of just saying, I need a widget, it needs to meet these criteria and then seeing the one or two companies that can come with it, we say, I, I need something that can answer this problem. Hey, industry, what do you have out there? And suddenly we get hundreds of inputs to choose from. Again, the marvelous forces, market forces and competition of ideas leading to cheaper, better, faster technologies for the Air Force. You blew my mind with, with fail cheap and learn quickly. Usually it's fail fast, and then the implication of that is learn expensive lessons, uh, especially when you're dealing with people early in their careers. It's fascinating. Right. And, and you, you raised, that's, that's an excellent highlight, right? Because when we were first learning it, and this is, this is the way knowledge grows, right? You try something, and you say, you know, fail fast or fail fast or fail forward, and then suddenly whether it's a general or a civilian senior leader in the Pentagon, Beam, let me get this straight. You plan on failing? And you're just like, no, 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 no. It's, it's not that we plan. As long as there's a learning lesson to it, and as long as it's cheap, and as long as it occurs quickly, let's get that out of the way early, and then we can move on to the good stuff later on. And they're like, oh. So yeah, it's a larger bumper sticker. It doesn't fit in the little three-phrase model that, that you're used to, but the, the five or six-phrase model seems to get the point across rather, rather well. There's an idea that, that a friend mentioned to me that I think you'll find interesting, but there's the book, How to, How to Lie with Statistics, but no one talks about how to tell the truth by trying to talk about statistics. Um, you know, when you're talking about failing, the probability is you're going to fail. Uh, so it's you know, better to just tell the truth about it. And, you know, adding in the word cheaply, fail cheaply, helps you, you know, tell the Indeed. truth of statistics. Um, transparency, cool. so, right? It's all about exactly, transparency. Exactly. So that's, that's kind of the new role that AFWERCS is filling for the U.S. Air Force. I know that there have been past initiatives, and you talk about in your ebook, that there have been past initiatives that try to do similar things to what AFWERCS is doing. Could you talk a little bit uh, at a high level what those initiatives look like and then how AFWERCS is different? And the reason I want to drill this point home is because you know, you talk about failure, you talk about failing cheap. Um, you know, there's, there's also this, this theme that you need to try things multiple times. You need to try different configurations, orientations, and iterations of, of programs and projects before they actually take hold and they work. Um, and the way that you've learned lessons in your ebook is really, really phenomenal. And, you know, that's a, a lesson in and of itself of how to learn lessons from, from past failures. Right. Um, it's, it's a little tough. Because again, as, as you say with uh, lies, damn lies, and statistics, same thing when you go back and do revisionist history of, well, they failed because of, because in any given decade, whether it's economic circumstances, technological know-how, the ability to communicate, et cetera, et cetera, as you were uh, mockingly technically accurate with regard to cable TV and other such things, maybe an AFWorks 10 years ago just wouldn't have worked because we wouldn't have had the same kind of reach or the same kind of data analytics. For example, when we go crowdsourcing to find other companies that would be interested in responding to one of our technology challenges, we'll actually go back and do database research and stuff like that and be like, okay, this is going to be a very targeted challenge. We want to try and get a thousand. And then if we fail 90% of the time, but we get a 10% hit rate and suddenly we have a hundred companies contributing to us, 
well, that's a win, right? So 90% failure leads to 10% success. You couldn't have said that 15 years ago. And maybe not even 10 years ago, the databases may not have been developed enough. So I'm hesitant to cast stones at the past as much as just say that there's a unique opportunity now with regard to information capabilities, ecosystem development, that is the development of your community towards the goals that you share, that we can do now in a way that we can speak to non-success because we can do a broad portfolio approach, try a thousand different companies, only 100 work out, 10% success rate, but that 100 is way better than the two or three that you might see if you put out a proposal that says, I would like to create a widget with these 68 subcomponents. What company can do that? And it's so constraining that no small business would want to do it. But instead, by having our more open system of supply and demand matching that's just simply, hey, here's a challenge out there, industry, what do you have that might solve this challenge? And then suddenly you see the world from 100 different new sets of eyes new sets of company eyes, that gives you a much broader portfolio to choose your successful path. So uh, the past has passed, but the current present opportunities that are out there because of technology, know-how, and learning curves that have been developed from the, the classical literatures of history or the Silicon Valley techniques, the fusion that we have between those right now does create a powerful force and source for AFWorks. Yeah, I mean, the technology enablement, that's a really powerful point of, you know, things that might not have been possible 10 years ago are ultra possible right now. And moving forward, they'll be even more possible as more technologies come online. Um, so m moving a little bit more tactically, could you paint the AFWorks landscape for us? What are some of the initiatives that AFWorks running, uh, or is running? What are some of the opportunities for the public to get involved? And then maybe we can, I can follow up with questions and dive into details about each of those different infrastructure components. Okay, sure. So uh, just, just to run through the model real quick, we say we are innovation demand and innovation supply. So again, back to that classical Adam Smith market matching technique. So if you're uncovering your customer's pain points, and we would say innovation demand in that case, how do we find out what our airmen, what are their pain points that they're trying to uh, solve for? And so our first program that we have is the annual Spark Paint competition which looks an awful lot like a Shark Tank competition. And arguably in 2018, Mark Cuban actually served on the panel with our Air Force senior leaders. So we really were comparable to Shark Tank at that point in time. But this is pretty much a six month Air Force wide, which you're talking 680,000 possible contestants who put together their proposed, hey, I've been prototyping this to solve for problem X. Can we scale this to 100 or to 1,000 different units? And they run their competitions through those MAGCOM levels, so think 11 major divisions of the Air Force. They, they run their Shark Tank, Spark Tank proposals up through those 11 different commands, and then finally it all crescendos in January with a top six finalists going in front of our Secretary of the Air Force, our Chief of Staff of the Air Force, our Chief Master Sergeant of the Air Force, and then two or three business or industry leaders as the, the, the shark or uh, venture capital investments into these young airmen's ideas. So was, that's was really Mark Cuban making for, investments? Was, was Mark Cuban making investments at the, uh, at the event? This is the uh, strange environmental constraints of our fine Air Force. Because we are government, we must treat everybody neutrally. So we have had business leaders who are like, I'd like to get into that. And we're like, thank you for your enthusiasm. All people will have an equal opportunity to contribute to this project in the upcoming session.
so now we're, we're still not quite that agile with regard to, hey, here's some money, go with it. Mm. <laughs> Entanglement, oh, influencing, oh, Congress is going to shut us down. It's incredible. Uh, if you veer off of the non-neutrality, even in appearance, that that can raise flags. And it's, you know, with good intentions to defend the taxpayers' dollars and equity and all of that. So I, I understand that. Uh, so Spark Tank is one. Base level innovation cells. So again, when you say, did, did we really follow American history? Yes. There's a guy, Major Tony Queso Perez, who started working up a base innovation cell back in 2016. And over time, without any major funding whatsoever, he just said, you know, if we line up our financial reps, our legal reps, and then we get a, a base leader to help us out, we can actually do innovation because there's usually a little bit of money that's left over at the end of the year that we could put towards projects. And from that very basic model, he has built up over 70 base level innovation cells. Let me say that again, that's voluntary. That's not, oh, and lo, headquarters Pentagon said, you will have X thousands of dollars and here's 100 people to put across 70 bases. No, in the same way that the states were meant to be an experiment for each other to learn from, they have built out a network across our 220-ish bases of 70 spark cells and the number continues to grow of people who are like, wow, that's really interesting because I need to innovate for pavement. I need to innovate for scheduling. I need to innovate for pick your widget on the flight line. And these different bases get to talk to each other. We as AFWorks host virtual collider events as well as in non-pandemic times, uh, in-person collider events for all these base spark cells, and they're able to meet companies, and uh, there's just great stuff going on at the base level. But the key thing to this uh, federated model, but not a dictatorial model, is that it's volunteer. Any base can have it. We aren't particularly rigid with it, but just they, they join this community, and we're able to innovate as a larger ecosystem because of it. So. The, between spark tank and your base spark cells, you really are at the individual airman level of what can help you on base, on the flight line today, go. Then so, we have I, our broader jump tool. In with a, jump in with a quick clarifying. Sure. Could, you, could you define what you mean by innovation hub um, you know, on each of these bases? Sure. It, it really is base de dependent. It could be five people who get together every Friday from one from the maintenance shop, one from the operations line shop, one from the admin shop, finance shop, who's like, you know, I really wish I could process these orders quicker. Oh, we actually have a coder who might be able to try an algorithm if your commander will approve you the opportunity to let the robot do it instead of the human. And that actually grew into one of our spark tank uh, competitions because they were able to come up with a programmer who could process paper orders faster than the human, and I'll say roughly at about three times the rate of the human with fewer errors because just processing orders from one database to the next requires all that hunt and peck finding with your fingers to put it, it's amazing. So a base could have five people that meet on Friday. It could have an office that's open eight hours a day and one person staffs it each day in their off time or because their commander gives them one day a week off to go pursue innovation. It really is a wide open model with what a spark cell might look like. But the very point is that there are a bunch of volunteers who want to do things and occasionally will aggregate and collective knowledge and common mind it through these collider events and such and through our virtual tools. So uh, wide open variety, but all with a common purpose of creating greater innovation for the Air Force. 
do these do these bases do these offices at these bases the ones that have offices are they staffed with like full maker spaces with full you know maker infrastructure 3d printers laser cutters these types of things far less likely that they will have that large of a technological build out but there are different maker spaces that they can tap into because of their network. So, you know, you might have three or four main maker spaces that they can tap into uh, amongst the group. But uh, no, I wouldn't say that any given office is guaranteed that they're going to have major technology sitting on base with them. But again, through our different tools and stuff, they can reach out and make, uh, make themselves available for the other technologies that are out there in the Air Force. Roger, and does the does the Air Force have a way to say, hey, I need this part, you know, rapid prototype? Do they have kind of an internal proto labs or an internal kind of makexyz.com where they, you, you can source where you need to get your stuff made if you want to go prototype and make things? There are some labs out there. I don't, I haven't experienced that it is so scaled because I went through 21 years of the military and I never had reason to bump into a makerspace. But we definitely, I know I visited some labs and stuff where they just have incredible 3D printers of pick your, whether it's kind of a rubbery thing or whether it's a solid titanium metal thing or whether it's an anti-electromagnetic pulse kind of, I mean, there there are some high-end stuff that's out there. So I think it depends on what the widget of interest is, but there's a that now our network could help connect them to the right lab that might be able to support them. That's beautiful. I mean, the reason I, I wanted to d- uh, dig in there is because I find the maker movement to be such a driving force for for the economy right now. I mean, the the, the commercial drone industry, those little you know DJI drones. Um, my understanding is that those were started by the maker movement, and then industry actually picked those up. There was someone who posted open source schematics for these for these little drones, and people started building their own drones. Um, and that was kind of a big driver for the commercial drone industry. Uh, I'm 98% sure that that's exactly how the story goes. Um, and we'll follow up and put something in the show notes to clarify if not. But um, it, it's so cool. And I, I worked in a makerspace for a while. And, and access to a makerspace, whether it's on-site or kind of where you can just put an order in, you can send your CAD file somewhere and have something made and have it returned to you within mm-hmm. like three or four days. It, it's so powerful. Um, so thank you so much for sharing that. So sorry, I interrupted you as you were continuing down the list of, uh, of resources that you guys offer. Well, uh, so we're still in the innovation demand side of the house. We also have a virtual tools group um, for us we ended up idea scales been our backbone for that one, but I, I know there are multiple different crowdsourcing ideation platforms that are out there, but we have over 40,000 airmen solicited. This one's internal to the Air Force, so the, the external world can't quite tap into that one. But we have over 40,000 airmen who are now up on this virtual collaboration tool so that you can have multiple bases working on the same problem because each one might have something that needs to get solved. At the same time, the current Air Force leadership, and largely General Goldfein is a big driver of this one, has he has provided funds through a squadron innovation fund so that at the base level or the squadron level, people can tap into funds to try some experiments or to try and have their successes for how might I advance my technology now from just my squadron unit to base-wide, and then maybe it becomes a spark tank thing that'll make it all the way Air Force-wide before all is said and done. So the virtual tools allows us to have not only views of each other, but to combine and make teams. And so that's grown up to 40,000. That's pretty cool. Major commands then, we also have a MAGCOM, Major Command, so those 11 divisions. 
Uh, we have a ManageCom Innovators program now, so that same thing. Uh, everybody kind of cares about being able to see their satellite. So what kind of technologies, again, at the unclassified level, just to get us started, what are ways that we can pursue uh, space resilience or persistent intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance on a particular area, whether you're a bomber or a fighter or an intel officer, you all care about what's coming down from the satellite. So instead of each of these MAGCOMs, major commands, coming up with their own answer, now we can work together, combine forces, money, lab research, tech time, and uh, come up with a more efficient answer there. So that's still on the side. And then the last demand, would be what we like to call our fusion event, which is kind of where a senior leader steps up and is like, hey, could you pursue this one? This one's kind of Air Force-wide. JADC2, that joint all-domain command and control, is one such thing that we've been pursuing. So with all of that demand lined up, then you turn around and say, okay, AFWorks, you've uncovered an idea or an opportunity that needs to be pursued. What are you going to do about it? So now we go from that innovation demand over to the innovation supply side, and this is where we start with our different innovation hubs that can offer these crowdsourcing challenges. For example, if uh, you come to walk us through the JADC2 event, we probably had our own preliminary meetings, multiple rounds of that, but then we brought in 115 different experts from across the Air Force, multiple services, industry, academia, uh, to talk about artificial intelligence and different ways that you might combine things that are necessary for command and control, ranging from sensors, which could be satellites, plus radar feeds coming off of your plane, plus what the tank sees, plus what the ship sees, so that all of these things from the sensors become centralized within some cloud of data so that you have strong situational awareness of the battle space. And then with that awareness, you can select the right mission set. So now we come back to that scheduling technology we talked about earlier. You can select the right mission set to go after and take out the appropriate targets and then get your feedback, make sure it's all validated, perhaps through a blockchain mechanism that we can now layer into these kinds of communications. What are all of these unclassified things we can do? So stage one of our crowdsourcing is this problem definition workshop or this challenge opportunity workshop, depending on your wording of the day. With that 115 people, then we put together a website challenge. And from that website challenge, we received over 300 uh, different forms of algorithms, sensor integration, data validity, and all of these different items that would be valuable for a JADC2 campaign. We then had an external validation of what was the quality of inputs coming in from this open source crowdsourcing. And the- Sorry, uh, clar clarifying. Were you were you crowdsourcing from 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 the public from industry or was this all still internal yes. when it goes to this website phase phase? Oh, excellent point. Yes, if you go to afworkschallenge.com, all one word, afworkschallenge.com, you can actually see current and past challenges that, that we've run. So we, we ran the fusion for JADC2 on the Afworks Challenge platform, and from there, with those 317 uh, submissions that came in over the six weeks-ish of our, uh, where we reached out to industry and just said, hey, what do you have that could be useful for sensing, integrating, validating data, decision-making data, all the things, optimization? What do you have that could do that for us, industry? 317 submissions came in. Uh, we picked a top 100, and then when those were validated, we were given external feedback from Air Force stakeholders that 30 to 40 of those items were medium to high interest. And in the end, 30 were picked 
for a final demonstration event that will be occurring this month. And from there, we expect uh, contracts and such to flow out. So here again, you have AFWorks as a information dissemination and information, information collection moment where all these different stakeholders, because everybody, Army, Navy, Air Force, Marine, Space Force, everybody cares about how are we going to integrate all of this sensor data to move forward. Um, here we have this. Here's 100 different things to choose from. Go meet these vendors over two days within this arena, speakers, panels, all sorts of stuff going on with that. And then finally, with a showcase and demonstration event at the end to conclude and hopefully lead on to contracts that make us more agile. So that's the hubs. And then the other part that uh, we've moved towards is something that's now being branded Air Force Ventures. So Small Business Innovation Research, SBIR, sometimes called SIBR phonetically just because saying Small Business Innovation Research will wear you out. SIBR is a program where we have worked as part of a coalition with the Small Business Innovation Research Group, as well as with the Air Force's Secretary of the Air Force Acquisitions Group. So this three-party coalition, what we have basically done is uh, provided a similar supply and demand open topic to the SIBR group because previously if SIBR put out three announcements per year and it would be like, hi, we're looking for a widget that has these kinds of capabilities. Maybe they can, maybe they can't tell you what it's going to be used for, but you know, who makes widgets that have these 68 subcomponents or capabilities? Instead, we turn around and say, hi, we are the SIBR open topic. Um, do you think you have something useful for the Air Force? Five pages, 15 slides, let us know. And so it's it's really wide open, which again means that it's going to have the quote failure rate, just like sending out a thousand emails might only result in getting 100 useful technologies out of it. But we do we open up a open topic style to see what kind of technologies are out there that people think would be useful. And at the time when this kicked off about 20 months ago, the standard the record for a cyber response was 66. Uh, responses to a, a to a um, query that they would put out, but under the open topic, we have seen that grow from instead of 66, we I, I think the first go was 166, so almost a three times or three x return with regard to options that were out there, and we have at times for phase ones broken over a thousand solicitations in response to our open topic queries. So we are definitely seeing a wider range of that broad portfolio of options for which our Air Force agencies then can then take a look at and say, that's useful for me, that's not useful for me, but being able to better leverage dollars because we have more options that we can pursue. So I've been fascinated with the SBIR program and the SDTR program for for the past three or four years because there are so few non-dilutive sources of capital that entrepreneurs can can actually tap into, especially when they're working on what I you know on hard technologies or deep technologies or things that that they actually need the capital for. Um, you know, business plan competitions for for college students are are another ver or another iteration of this. But the non-dilutive capital piece is so important, and I really just want to drive the point home to any young entrepreneurs who might be listening that the SBIR program and and especially what what Beam and the AFWorks team are pushing forward with this open topics is is such an incredible opportunity. Uh, and and Beam, if I'm not mistaken, the the way that you guys are going about implementing the SBIR process is also a lot faster. Um, than how you would typically work with with the SBIR office. Um, could you talk a little bit about that? This, this is an interesting conversation that again goes back to 
the environment of the past versus the present. There has definitely been a move by leadership to go back and re-examine all of our business processes. And even if you look at the 2018 National Defense Summary, there is an unclassified version that you can grab off the website that's just in the teenage level or teen uh, pages in length. And But it has a lot to be said for innovation and the drive to go back and look at business practices to make us more agile. But the Cyber Center of Excellence, the Small Business Innovation Research uh, group has done a great job about shortening their times for contract awards. It used to be it used to be crazy, like 30 months, and they brought it down to six at times and stuff. So given the environment that they had to work with, it was it's pretty amazing what they've had. But it is true that with our innovation and our experimental, and it's important to note, Air Force is always an experiment in how things work. But the Cyber Group was like, hey, let's let's try out this experiment here. How does this work if we do this? There are times where you would see fifty contracts getting awarded in fifty hours. Now there's a bit of a Herculean effort that occurs with that. You might have 50 different contracting officers that show up and so they can work a contract hard for a whole week and stuff like that. So, uh, there are definitely times where we produce some pretty amazing output, but it isn't something that I would say has been standardized into the system yet as much as what if we try it like this? What if we try it like that? So with, with that, we are definitely faster, but I wouldn't want to say that it's permanently faster yet. We're still working through all of the larger bureaucracy that doesn't give us as much grace once we go from being an experiment of what happens when you try this to a, we would like to permanently try this. That'll be a different level of re review and scrutiny. So to summarize the different opportunities to, for, for entrepreneurs to actually get involved and work with, with, with AFWorks, could you run through them, just bullet points? Yes, uh, I would start with afworks.af.mil because that'll take you to our website. You can look around at the different calendars. You can join the Ask Me Anything hours. You'll see that uh, where you can just call in and say, hey, what's going on? Or you can listen to other people's ideas. You can become involved in a Cyber open call or open topic, so you can just uh, web search your way into a Cyber uh, competition if you want to submit a technology item of interest. You can go to AFWorksChallenge.com and see what the current challenges are and what the current hottest topics are with regard to what the Air Force is trying to seek through our crowdsourcing methods. And then again, as you look at our website, look at the calendars for where we will be having collider events or virtual collider events that may be used to bring together business and academia with different airmen who have uh, pain points that they're trying to solve through technologies. So those would probably be four good starting points. And then, you know, the other side of the equation for any, any young airmen who might be in the Air Force right now who are interested in dipping their toe into innovation, what are, what are the, you know, key actionables key places they should go and look for for those opportunities? Sure. So uh, the young airmen, they'll see that there will be the spark tank. That's an Air Force-wide call, so that's an easy one to get involved with. If they want to join their base-level spark cell, they could simply get to afworks.mil, and during the Ask Me Anything hour, they could say, hey, where's the nearest spark sell for me, and then we can track that down through the appropriate resources so they could get involved at the base level there. Or they could jump on to the ideascale.gov 
airforceideascale.gov website so that they could see what all the virtual possibilities are with their 40,000 other fellow airmen who are producing innovations. Those would probably be three quick ways that they could see what's going on there that they could join to ask for uh, requests and help for the technology needs that they're seeking. So now I'd love to, to, to move the conversation from the you know, tactical pieces that AFWorks offers and into more of a, I don't want to say esoteric, but more of a you know, strategic and a little bit of an esoteric conversation around, around innovation and, and kind of the evolution that's happening in the defense innovation world. Um, you know, personally, I'm an, I'm an aerospace junkie. I love aerospace. I'll be transitioning my career into aerospace at some point in the next few years. Um, or I guess more, more, full, more, more fully into aerospace. So I'd love to learn a, bit, a, a lot about that. Before that, though, there's one question I want to squeeze in kind of at the convergence of, you know, the, the airman innovator who's in the Air Force and the, the young entrepreneur who's at the start of their career. So, you know, people view the military, they say, oh, wow, there's this, this organization that, that some people join. It's not, you know, from my, in, my, in my world, in the tech world, in the, in the, you know, right out of college going to work at an aerospace company world, People don't necessarily think, hey, joining the military is a, is a great professional development opportunity for me. Um, could you maybe give the, the elevator pitch for, for the young person, the young innovator listening who, who is considering joining the military or might not have considered it or thought about it before this conversation? Um, those to pitch and then you know, what the most efficient pathway for them to kind of take on an innovative role in the Air Force, in the military, in the DOD is. Sure. I'll take uh, either as an aerospace engineer or perhaps somebody who's interested in public policy and intelligence. You, if you, whichever direction you take, when you're commissioned, if you view or if you pursue the military from a mindset of, I'm going to go on the inside and I'm going to learn their pain points from the inside. Why do you go to college? Why do you give up so much of your life and so much of your money? You do it for the education. The reverse, flip the script. The military pays you to get an education on what the biggest customer on the planet is interested in, right? If you're an aerospace engineer and you jump over and you end up on an F-35 building program or something like that, when you pop out after your four-year commitment and you join your Boeings or your Lockheed Martins or you're just like, I've been on the inside, folks. This, this is what's really important. We need to develop this kind of technology. What a hot ad that is for, for you versus, well, I took all these courses. Right? So there is an educational opportunity there. Same thing on intelligence, what kind of algorithms matter, what kind of satellite linkups matter, what kind of human To be on the inside instead of scrambling to try and learn what are the important pain points, you were there. And so I would not say, I would say the elevator pitches don't view the military as a 20 year career, view it as a five year learning lesson for which you could then be an expert to provide innovative after that. So I would think of it as a short amount of your career skills as you get ready to really amp it up into your late twenties and thirties. And for the, for the, for the, you know, entrepreneurial spirit, the innovator who's thinking, Hey, I want to go into the military and I want to be an entrepreneur. I want to, I want to help drive innovation inside of the military. Are there opportunities for that? And, and how does someone go about finding those opportunities? That would be the same, I guess, as uh, the young airmen who, when they join, it would be similar. You would probably have to start out at your base spark cell because for AFWorks, uh, we have all sorts of coalition of the willing helping out our team of 
we'll say 15 to 20 government and then 15 of our business partners contracted help, I guess you would, you would call it. Um, but in, in the end, then we have over 150 different folks who are in, involved in different projects at any given time. To be AFWORK specific, it really does help that you've had at least a four-year tour under your belt because if you don't understand the culture and appreciate the bureaucracy and all the different nuances, it could be a little overwhelming to come to us and be like, all right, agile and nimble. And if you don't have that depth coming in, that's it's a pretty steep learning curve for the pace that we're trying to run at. Roger that. Okay, cool. So moving over to the innovation part of this conversation, I love your title on your on your LinkedIn bio. I think if I saw this, it might have been somewhere else, but you, you describe yourself as an innovation strategist. Um, can you define what that means? Can you talk about what innovation strategy is? Right. Awesome. So innovation is the ability to create an alternate reality. That alternate reality might come on the back of a napkin because you sketch something out and you're like, whoa, this is, this is something worth pursuing. Or it could be because you actually did the prototype and you got your data test. You know, there are different ways that you can work through it with that. With regard to strategy then, with regard to strategy, when we speak of strategy, the classical terms are the way in which you use your means to achieve your ends. So strategy is I have a goal that I want to pursue. How am I going to use my resources in order to achieve that goal? So if my goal is to create alternate realities, what resources have I been given? And we've been given a team of It's awesome because there are civilians, active duty, guard, reserve, and then we also have another team of at least 15 different business partners out there that are helping us running our hubs and such like that. So we have an amazing group of resources and talent. And then how do we go after it? Well, I just ran you through the supply and demand system. So overall innovation strategist is somebody who creates alternate realities by trying to optimize the fusion of capabilities and talent that we've been entrusted with uh, on behalf of the American taxpayers. Beautiful. Um, when you think about innovation strategy in the context of the military, the military, and I think of the military, I think strategy, tactics, how do you, how do you actually execute and maneuver and, and conduct warfare? but we don't necessarily think of the strategy as it applies to innovation. So could you talk about the history of kind of innovation strategy or, or maybe there's a story or an example that you can, that you can share of where innovation strategies come into play in the military, you know, in the past and, and in history. Absolutely. Th thank you for this opportunity to discuss history. Max history is written by the innovative. And if you doubt that I give you two words, good sir. Trojan horse. Whatever that is that was in Homer's Odyssey, right? The Trojan horse. Whether it was actually one guy who was in a six-foot-tall horse who then got brought into the city and then he cut the gate guy at night and he was able to raise the gates and then the Greeks were able to go in and destroy Troy, or whether it was a horse that had 20 people in it. Innovation. We could go through uh, the writings of Sun Tzu are filled with different forms of deception innovations that were being pursued through the Chinese military. Hannibal against the Romans at Cannae, same basic technologies, but a different tactic, right? Hannibal was able to use a retreat 
that actually ended up allowing them to surround the Romans. And even though they were outnumbered by approximately three to one, it was a lopsided, lopsided slaughter of maybe a couple dozen lost on Hannibal's side and thousands of Romans taken out by just the classic spears and bows and arrows because sometimes a mindset can be more innovative if technology is net neutral. And then, of course, before Cannae with the Romans, Hannibal also brought over a war elephants with him across the Alps. Nobody had ever thought that somebody would do some sort of innovative movement of elephants across the Alps in the winter. What is that? You know, so I, I don't know how many different ways to point out, you know, World War II, Washington crossing the Delaware. 1776. Wait a minute, we don't fight during the winter time, and look, we have an independent country because of tactics like this. So, uh, yes, the military is full of innovation, or rather, history's winners are full of innovation, and those who do not innovate, they will fall behind. So, I love that. I want to make a distinction. You know, in your ebook, you say, do not be an innovation office, be an innovation empowerment office. And so that's kind of the, the mm-hmm. distinction, at least in my mind, that I make between the concept of innovation and then innovation strategy. And so mm-hmm. I, I am curious if there's any examples of like, hey, you know, we need to solve this problem. Let's take a step back and think about how, innovate how we're innovating, um, you know, in history that, that, you're, that, you, that you know of, if that makes sense. So, so the innovation... Sure bringing elephants across the Alps is incredible. Um, but are there any examples where the innovation of the innovation has been, you know, exponentiating? Uh, oh, Tom Goodwin, TechCrunch, 2015, 2016. Uh, I'm going to paraphrase, but when you say the innovation of innovations, he kind of wrote his leadoff argument was, Something in a, something interesting is happening. Uber, the world's largest taxi service, owns no cars. Airbnb, the world's largest accommodation service, owns no hotel rooms. Alibaba, or Amazon for the Chinese, the world's largest retailer, owns no inventory. Something interesting is happening here. And this concept of AFWorks which owns, we own no major technology labs, right? We've got a small little prototype in space, but we would connect you with a 3D makerspace. You know, what is it about an organization that adds some value-adding layer of connectivity the way that an Uber connects a driver to a rider and it's a centralized mindset that provides a service what is it about AFWorks? What service do we provide? We provide this supply and demand thing that even though we don't actually have the technology at the end and we don't have the problem at the beginning, but we provide that matching service in the same way that an Uber or an Airbnb or an Amazon connects. You know, And so when we say our shorts, our very short mission is connect innovators, accelerate results, you could insert for Uber, connect drivers with riders. You could insert for Amazon, connect retailers with customers. You can, right? We can repeat this. That innovation of innovations, I think that's a major framework that definitely inspired us back in the 2017 era. Beautiful. Um, in the when it, when you think of 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 inside of the military, things that have inspired your thinking. 
uh, you know, in the past, say, say 250 years, let's, let's maybe narrow it to the past hundred years of us military, you know, actions, what's the kind of the biggest, boldest example of innovation that you, that you like to look back on and say, wow, that's inspirational. If they can do that, we can do anything. I, I need to give a pair because the first one will sound uh, far too warm-like, and I, I don't believe that any military person, or now I'm in veteran status, my, my 21 years have passed, I'm a civilian now. Um, the, you, you have to look at the World War II island hopping campaign and the fact that we needed to develop a new technology to try and resolve the Pacific Campaign Theater that was a major technological revolution that stopped the war sooner than anybody else could historically provide evidence that the alternate would happen. But I mean, that is a major, that is a major loss of life. And I, I don't believe any warrior, I don't, I don't think anybody celebrates a, another death, but with regard to major innovation, certainly the dawn of the nuclear age has to go down as a major technological milestone within the last 100 years. More positively, though, as the Cold War was ensuing and East Berlin and West Berlin were divided, and back then what was called the Soviet Empire, and through Stalin and the group of communists over there, as they then said, we own Berlin because it's on our side of Germany. What are you going to do about it? And you're wondering, is the democracy that's associated with uh, West Berlin going to crumble? What, what are we going to do about it? Here, the military, rather than being a smash mouth force, begins 24-7 airdrop operations. And it's like, nope, we're going to show you the democracies and the power of the market. And watch this. We're going to keep, we're going to keep them fed. We're going to keep airdropping food. We're going to keep, and it's, it's, I mean, talk about innovative thinking. Rather than making it a war to fight our way into Berlin, it's like, we can airdrop this, whatever. When you get bored, let us know. Otherwise, we'll just keep airdropping. And eventually, they did recant. So that, to me, was amazing. Sometimes the technology is the same, but the innovative mind totally changes the equation. There's a, there's a great podcast that you might have listened to that came out the past six months called What We Saw the Cold War by Bill Whittle. Uh, and he has an episode just on the Berlin airlift. And so for anyone who's interested in learning about that, we'll put it in the show notes. Um, very cool. And so, so, you know, another thing that you talk about in your book is you say the earlier you can establish an innovations, an innovation effort structure, authorities and responsibilities, the smoother your multi-stakeholder innovation efforts will become. So I've always been enamored with, with how professional all of you folks in the military are and how much discipline you have and how, you know, from my perspective, that really enables you to do incredible work. Could you talk about a military discipline, professionalism, and how they're enabling innovation? Um, you know, what, rather than contra to what some people on the, the tech side of the aisle might think of how they they stifle innovation, I believe that they do enable mm -hmm. innovation, and I and I imagine you you're on that page based on that quote from the book. Right, there are uh, two competing forces that need to be discussed. There, number one is if you have an organization of six hundred eighty thousand people. You should expect that there's a lot of bureaucracies and rules. So I can understand why the outside world would say, there can't be any innovation over there. There's too many rules constraining them. But if you go back to your concept of, but they've got discipline and they've got character and they've got, because what it takes, 
whether, however you view it, people, this is not a draft era, right? People voluntarily said, I believe in the values of the United States government to the point that I'm willing to die for it. I'm willing to put on a uniform and at any moment's notice, somebody can say, sorry, I need you to go over here and it's a combat zone, but this is what your nation needs right now. And you say, hey, I volunteered for it. That level of character. So I think I would like to replace discipline uh, with the word trust, because once you, the discipline is a necessary but not sufficient condition for trust, but to make your way through an academy or an officer's training school or an ROTC school and be entrusted as an officer or, or to go through the enlisted basic trainings and then your advanced tactical, there comes a point where, and now we say, we trust you. You have made your way this far along, so we trust you. What does that trust allow us to do? that others might be more worried about in a startup type land, our trust says, again, think about, think about all that AFWorks is accomplishing with our core of 15 government, 30 total with business. Why can we get that much done? Because we're willing to do the Uber kind of, you know, what we're going to connect. Well, how are we going to do that? Well, it depends on what each person's strength is, but I trust them to go out and do it. Nobody calls me on Monday morning and says, hey, Bean, this is what I'm doing this week. Approved? No. It's each of you has your capability, lead responsibility. We gather four times a year to review what those targets are and how you're doing. I meet with everybody every two weeks for an hour. And other than that, it's pickup ball as it goes because I don't want to take up people's time with over meetings, too much structure, too much. So to your point, because we have that much discipline and trust in our people, we're able to offer a lot of autonomy and empowerment. And after we set those centralized goals of this is what you're going to accomplish this year and we check in every three months on the goals, everything else is tactics and how can we help each other to get things done. So trust is foundational to autonomy and our people are just awesome with it, the talent that we have. On the, on the other side of the coin, how do you make sure that you know the innovation isn't stifled or that your system and your structure and the authorities aren't, aren't becoming too rigid as time's moving on? Um, you know, an example that comes to mind is, you know, Mac, the, the, the infamous stories about McNamara during Vietnam and controlling the whole war from basement of the Pentagon. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Like how you're, you're curtailing that at least in AFWorks and maybe how the, the Air Force as a whole is, is dealing with that? Uh, I cannot speak to the Air Force as a whole because each, when you're 680,000 people big, everybody has a different way to run their system. We have been marvelously enforced by our senior leaders of, hey, as long as you continue to get it done and everything's moral and up and up, you know, in accordance with constitutional law, rock on. And so we're very good about low level amounts of bureaucracy, weekly reporting, travel approvals, all, all of the things that could take up five to 10 hours away, just, just in the bureaucracy alone in other organizations. And again, we understand why that is. And we do our own independent audit of our books and stuff like that, just to trust but verify, to borrow from Reagan. <laughs> but in general, because we are have such a high trust and a high autonomy group, the extra meetings, we have ends at me at this point in time. Sometimes there's requests, like we'll get to brief the Vice Chief of Staff of the Air Force. He, he puts a calendar for us every month to go up and see him, and it's just, just amazing. But there's very little, whether it was General Harris or General Nahum, who was like, you know, you need to buckle down, and I need a 10-line report from each capability leader. Nope. 
They've been very good about, hey, we trust the talent that's been assembled. We believe in your wide open offense, supply and demand system, go. So I would say that the system so far has protected itself because we continue to produce results with the awesome talent of our team. Another, another question, kind of the last, the last question uh, I think we have time for on this, this, this um, innovation infrastructure side of things. I'm going to try to squeeze in one more. But how do you prepare to transition? The, the military, the DOD has done an, a pretty great job of, of transitioning just because there's such high turnover as administration, new administrations come in as, as people get promoted, mm-hmm. you know, no, new people commission, new people enlist. Um, how are you preparing for a transition, transitioning AFWORKS and, and you know, building a sustainable organization over the, not just the next five years while you might be running it, but over the next 10, 20 years? Right. Uh, I think uh, only unless I become rigidly locked in by my ego will there ever be such a thing as this is the only way that AppWorks can work because we keep a wide open system. When we started, we had five capabilities. Now we have 12 capability leaders. So if it were only going to be, well, these are my five and I'm going to protect these five, we wouldn't have been open to add in all the other things that you see with Sibbers, Ventures, the MAGCOM program. These are things that did not exist in 2017. But because we stay open to the core concept of what pain point can we solve for the airmen, as long as we hold true to that and then go back to our three-word strategy of empower, innovate, and defend, as long as we hold true to that, and I do believe we always will, our form may look different. Maybe one day we'll have 15 capabilities instead of 12, or maybe we'll go back down to seven. But as long as that pipeline stays true to the look out for your end user, work your MVPs, minimum viable products, your prototypes, and always with the idea of helping our warfighters become more agile, I think we're going to be sound there. And I think no matter, unless it's a 100%, <laughs> change out over the summer, as long as we're moving at less than a third or less than even at half, we have so many structures in place and so many standard briefings that go back to supply and demand and look out for your warfighter and it's in our culture. And um, I feel pretty confident in the general concepts of taking care of our warfighters. And I think that will endure throughout time. Beautiful. So I think we have time for, for one more question. And I'd love to end by asking you, you know, if you, when you think about what, what have been the pieces of content that have helped you get to where you are in your career and cultivate the mindset that you have, which is a very, you know, precise, um, innovative, creative, uh, and, and forward looking mindset, but also very, very on point. And I, I actually took, I, I took a look at your Udemy course and, you know, you're very into, into, into flow and we'll plug, we'll plug the Udemy course at the end, um, flow and all of these, these biohacking behaviors. What, what's the, what are the, the pieces of content that have influenced you the most that you might read, share, or gift regularly? Okay. Uh, I would say from an AFWorks perspective, if you were to pick two books, I would take Cotter's Leading Change and the eight steps that he has associated with that, whether it's small wins or senior leader support, there's a lot of goodness in that framework when you're starting from within a big bureaucracy. That may not apply to a startup other than making your venture capitalist investors happy. So that could be the senior leader. So I would say Cotter's leading change and Steve Blank's four steps to the epiphany. If you're just trying to get a feel for what does that mean to start with a minimum viable product instead of throwing all your money at a product early, and that kind of built out our larger framework of think big, start small, fail cheap, learn fast, and then win big at scale. So I would say 
two deeper books than Cotter's Leading Change, Steve Blank's Four Steps to Epiphany. Um, structurally, again, Alexis de Tocqueville's Democracy in America, Adam Smith's The Wealth of Nation, Plato's Republic and his arguments with Aristotle and the Nicomachean ethics about, hey, who's going to take care of the children better? A specialized class of parent nannyhood or the parents, you know, so innovation can be found throughout, again, all of the great innovators who survived. Uh, you'll find that in the classics. But when I'm driving around in my Jeep, it's probably, uh, it could be a teaching company, uh, history, economics, constitutional law, creativity, a lot of economics with world development or creative destruction themes. You can find all sorts of great courses and the systems of innovation that can help you build out an organization for that. And then I always like Hillsdale College's free stuff because whether it's through their constitutional economics or history courses, they talk so much about how the human spirit, when it's given the proper environment to, to flourish, it produces great things. So I'm still, I, you know, I'm on my 50th revolution around the sun. So I'm still more of a, I got it off of a CD or I downloaded it. But uh, yeah, those are probably my major inspirations that you, you could find me in any given day. Beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing. So I know that we are starting to get over time. So I'll, I'll start wrapping up. What is the immediate call to action that you have? I know you have the base of the future challenge coming up um, for how people can get involved with AFWorks and how you know, this community can support you and support the U.S. and, and support AFWorks. Awesome. Thank you for that. Yes, uh, I would recommend if anybody has enjoyed what we're talking about and what AFWorks is trying to do, if you go to afworks.af.mil, you can find the, hey, sign up. And, you know, maybe once a month, we're, we're pretty low maintenance on sending out emails, but we can give you some, some ideas of here's what we're looking at and here's what we're moving towards. I would very much recommend you go to afworkschallenge.com and see all the stuff we have worked on and we'll be working on stuff and definitely look at the base of the future because this could blow out to be a three-day event where we cover everything from 5G technologies to airman well-being in the future because uh, airman well-being, you know, even post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, there are all sorts of virtual clients that uh, different algorithms you can put into the computer so that the camera can read and tell where stresses are. It's Some of it's the same that you can find associated with concussions. There's just amazing technologies out there. So probably at the end of July, uh, track for our base of the future or go to afworksfusion.com and watch the details once we release the final dates for that. I think you'll find it very enjoyable what we've been able to do at a virtual level to show that the government is capable of innovating and that our Air Force is leading the way. And could you just elaborate for one second on 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 your your other programming that you have going on and, and where people can find that? Is that all available at afworks.com too? The different challenges, the SBIR, the SBIR programs, uh, other ways to get involved? The uh, super program has its, uh, we, we do have, if you go to the afworks.af.mil page, you can click on the links to for industry and that'll guide you to the different websites and, and the different uh, connections so that you can get to the information that you're interested in for the small business innovation research. But yeah, lots to be found just by having, and even the AFWorks book is on afworks.af.mil uh, on the resources. So all sorts of stuff you can look at. Beautiful. And are these event, the events that are happening going to be virtual or are they in person? We're still sticking with a virtual model probably through the end of summer just to be um, yeah, responsible for social distancing and such. Great. Well, thank you so much for coming on today, Beam. I really, really appreciate it. This was an amazing conversation. I had so much fun. Um, and I hope that the community enjoyed too. 
Max, I thank you. This is an awesome set of questions, and it's it's been a real it's been a real pleasure being able to reflect on AFWorks with you. So thank you for the time today. Amazing. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Next Frontier Podcast. If you like this content, please head over to nextfrontier.org forward slash subscribe. That's nextfrontier.org forward slash subscribe. We have out of this world content coming your way over the next few months. Hope that you enjoy and stay tuned.